Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So this is the eighth sermon that I've preached from the book that we know of as Revelation. And for many, the sermons that I've preached are not what they've been expecting, perhaps not even what they've been desiring. Where's all the mystery? Where's the explanation of the supernatural? Where's the unknown and the unexplainable? Why are they not being emphasized? Because it seems like you're not preaching the text, David. It seems like you're just skipping right over the good parts. How come you don't talk about them more? Simply because I want to be biblical. And preach this letter emphasizing the intended meaning, which is that that's given to us in verse 1 of chapter 1 of this letter, which is the thesis statement, the theme and the meaning of this book. Do you recall what chapter 1, verse 1 is, what it says? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things which must soon happen. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave, John. This is the reason I'm not emphasizing anything else. Because this book, the book of Revelation, is no different than the rest of the Bible. The whole entire Bible is full of strange and mysterious and and unexplainable things. Simply because we are dealing with a holy God that is completely other than us. And it is He that this is a revelation of. And the rest of the Bible... It's all leading up to the events that are spoken of in this book. In fact, many of those other books in the rest of the Bible, they actually speak of things that will be covered in this book. And this book begins with seven letters. Letters to the seven churches. And they all have the same single theme. Church, be the church. Because the church is his bride. The church is the joy that is set before Christ. The church is the reason that all things work together for our good, which is why he begins this revelation speaking to his church. And in this letter, the letter that we're reading today, the letter to the church in Sardis, there's a single word that runs like a thread connecting and giving meaning to what is being said. And that word is name. Jesus begins using that word in verse 1, and he uses it again in verse 4, and he uses it twice in verse 5. Name. What's in a name? Because the word name is the thread that runs throughout the letter to the church of Sardis. And the name that is, is that thread, that is used for that, that name is not common. It is the most important name that has ever been named. It is the name of the one who this is a revelation of. And he begins this letter in the same manner that he's done, he has done with all other letters, with a description of himself, a description that is drawn from that larger description that's given to us in chapter 1, verses 10 through 20. So in every letter to each church, he's emphasized a different aspect of that description of himself emphasizing that which is important and pertinent to that individual church that he's writing to. And every time that he does this, he's not saying, that aspect is the most important one of me. 
or even more important than any others. What he is doing is he's just highlighting that attribute as an attribute, telling us that this is part of who he is, and each attribute is significant. It's important and equal with all the others. And to this church, to the church of Sardis, the emphasis given to this church is this. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we've already been told what the seven stars are. They're the angels of the seven churches, as told to us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. An angel there can either be the pastor of that church or an angelic being that's assigned to each church. But what are we supposed to make of the seven spirits that are spoken of here? Because the seven spirits are the single attribute that is being highlighted in this letter. And it is that attribute that is pointing to the reason that this name that is running throughout this letter is of such importance. So what are the seven spirits? Because the book of Revelation is the only book that speaks of the seven spirits. It's the only place in the Bible that you're going to find that name, the seven spirits, spoken of. The first mention is found in Revelation 1, verse 4. It reads, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who is and was to come, who was, I'm sorry, who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And so from that verse, it seems that the seven spirits, whatever they are, they're not the same as the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And our verses from today, they're the second time that this is the, the seven spirits are mentioned. And here it seems, too, that they're not the same as the one who was, who is, and who is to come, since he has the seven spirits. And then the next time they're mentioned is in chapter 4, verse 5. When John there is relating a heavenly vision that he was given of God, and there he saw, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds of peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So in that verse, we're told that the seven, what the seven spirits are. They're the seven lamps of burning fire before the throne. So are those lamps the same as the lampstands that John saw in Revelation 1? Because if they are, then we know what the seven spirits are. They're the seven churches. Because that's what's said in chapter 1, verse 20. But the word there in chapter 4, verse 5, that is translated as lamps, it's not the same word that is used in chapter 1 for lampstand. In fact, a better translation of that word would be torch and not lamp. So, not the lampstand and not the church. And then the final time that the seven spirits are spoken of is found in Revelation 5, verse 6. Then I saw in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. So it's worth noting here that whatever the seven spirits are, they're always related directly with the one that this is a revelation of. But what are they? Well, in verse 5 of chapter 4, the seven spirits were said to be the seven lamps or torches. And here the seven spirits are said to be the seven horns or seven eyes, which are sent out into the earth and into the earth and are the lamb, of the lamb that was slain. So there we have it, an explanation of what the seven spirits are. They're the seven lamps or torches, the seven horns, 
the seven eyes of the Lamb of God. Clear as mud. But to clarify the murky understanding of what is being said here, what those seven eyes, those seven horns, the seven torches, what the seven spirits are, we're going to have to do some time on the left-hand side of the Bible. And you should get used to this. Because if you desire an easy-to-understand, easy-to-fit-into-your-box, easy-to-define, and easy-to-cast-aside kind of God, perhaps you should just travel into Altus and go to that building that doesn't have windows or go to that temple that is being constructed there because that God is easy to understand, very logical, very easy to define because that God is not God. That is an idol made in the image of man and not truly the God that is defined and described in the Bible. The the God that is described in the Bible, he is simple in his character and nature. And I use that term as a divine attribute, meaning that that is the opposite of being composite. The simplicity of God means that God is not made up of goodness, mercy, justice, power, and love. He is goodness, mercy, justice, power, and love. Every attribute of God is who God is. They are all of him. They are his essence. He is simple. He is holy. Holy is a summation of all of his attributes, which are all within him in equal measure. And saints, to emphasize one of those attributes above another, that is heretical. If your God is a God that is more law than grace or love, you are worshiping a false God. And this is why the religious Jews, they stumbled over the stone that God had laid as a chief cornerstone. They took the law of God, which spoke of the nature and the holiness of God, and they made a God out of it. And for this reason, we must use the full counsel of God to better understand Him. And we must get comfortable with the reality that. And hear me about this. We can only know God as He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. Nothing more than that. We must be willing to stop at the end of that road and place a sign in our, mar- in our minds and our hearts that says, Stop. This is the end of the line. Because if we, when we are willing to go past that point and begin speculating about God, it is then that we are creating Him in our image. Since we're using our minds, our intellect, our understanding to define Him. So in order to understand what the seven spirits are, we must start in the Old Testament. First of all, Let's deal with that number seven. Seven is a number of perfection or completion. Some of you are shaking your heads like, yep, I know that. But how do you know that? Can you point to Scripture to say why you know that is truth? Where where do you get that from? Well, you get that from a thing called the biblical rule of first mention. If you desire to know what the meaning of something is in Scripture, look to the first time that it's mentioned in the Bible. The first time that seven is used, that number seven, is in the book of Genesis. 
In the very beginning, God created. And he created in seven days. And that's the first use of that number. And that term. And the number seven, or a form of of that number, is used over 800 times in the Bible. And it always draws its meaning from that first use. Completion of good. The number seven is used very often in the book of Revelation. And when we read that number, we are to think perfection or completion. But what about the seven spirits? The ones that we know are complete or perfect because it's said that they're seven. What are they? Well, let's begin from the far left and work to the right. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, We are told here, there about God. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And you're thinking that has nothing to do with the seven spirits. But that word lamp that is spoken of there, the same word only in Hebrew that is used in the Revelation 4 or 5 verse, meaning a lamp or a torch. And here we're told that it is the word that is a lamp and a light. The word. You know, that thing that Rick Warren is playing fast and loose with, loose with in ordaining women as elders, the thing that those that hold the left-behind theology play fast and loose with, the word, the thing that those that deny the deity of God, the full and complete sovereign deity of God over all things, including salvation, election, predestination, the word that they play fast and loose with, loose with, it is said to be the lamp and the light and it's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. So there we know that seven spirits are equated with deity and are actually said to be deity. Next stop, Proverbs 15.3. There we're told something more about the seven spirits. There we are told the eyes of Yahweh are in every place watching the evil and the good. And again, you're thinking, how's that got to do with the seven spirits? Well, in the description of the seven spirits of Revelation 5-6, the seven spirits are said to be the seven eyes of God. Same thing that's being said in Proverbs 15-3. And another Old Testament book that's helpful in understanding what is meant by the seven spirits is Zechariah, specifically chapter 4, verses 1-14. through 14. In that chapter, we're told of a vision being given to that prophet Zechariah, a vision in which he sees a lampstand with seven lamps and seven spouts. And what are they? What is the meaning of that? He didn't know, and it was explained to him in verse 6. This is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says Yahweh of hosts. So those seven lamps, the seven bowls, which are the seven, are the lamp that Zechariah sees, that's the spirit. And then in verse 10 of chapter 4 of Zechariah, when speaking of the Spirit once again in relation to the command of God to Zerubbabel, we are told, For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of Yahweh which roam to and fro throughout the earth. These seven? Which seven? The seven lamps, the seven bowls, which make up the lamp that is said to be the Spirit. They will be glad. And then once again, we're told that they are the eyes of Yahweh, the all-seeing, the all-knowing. But the clearest answer as to what the seven spirits are 
That's also given to us in the Old Testament in another prophetic book. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and, two and 3. I want you to turn there with me because it's important for you to see this with your own eyes. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11, verse 2. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. That ties in with the name that is being made of such great importance in our letter today. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. Take a look at that sentence again. Is there anything that you can spot that looks strange, that looks grammatically wrong there? The Spirit of Yahweh. Did you notice that both Spirit and Yahweh are capitalized? We'll rest on Him, and that is also capitalized. And if, not, if all three of those are not capitalized in your translation, you should probably get a new translation. Because both Spirit and Yahweh in the original language are proper nouns. That's why they're capitalized. And the Him... That's a pronoun that is speaking about the root of Jesse, which is a person whose name is always capitalized because it is a name above all names. The only name that can be given, that a person could be saved by, in him, the him that it's speaking of, is the one that this is a revelation of. And again, this has been this just evidence of how poorly we've been taught and led. Because how many people are captivated by revelation because we can't fathom what is said within this book. We're, we are so wondered at the strange and the mysterious things, the bulls, the seals, the flying bugs that have helmets and stinging tails. And yes, there are things in this letter. And even in the letters to the churches that are intriguing and are strange, the throne of Satan, where he lives, Jezebel, the white stones. But none of these things, none of them are in comparison to what is coming later in the book of Revelation. And we think, we have been taught that what is said in the rest of this letter, after these seven letters, that it's those things that are hard to understand. We will jump over. We have been taught to jump over the, the unsearchable. We've been taught to dismiss the unknowable as completely common for those things that we think are important in the Bible. And the reason that that left-behind theology has gained so much traction, why those books have made so much money, is for one reason only, because they are centered on us and not the one that this is a revelation of. How quickly do we dismiss the truth of Isaiah 11.2? Which is the same thing. It's the same thing that is said in the opening doxology given in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. Did you even remember hearing the doxology of chapter 1? Let me read it to you again. Grace to you and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come. 
and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood. There is unspeakable mystery found here. Here in Isaiah 11, too, the same. And we think so little of it that we just dismiss it. But this is God. The same God that is spoken of throughout the whole Bible. This is the same God that's spoken of in Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Same God that is spoken of in Genesis 3.22. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, man has become like one of us. Again, in that verse, Yahweh, plural noun, meaning more than two. And what is said in Isaiah 11.2? That speaking about God, describing, defining Him. And then what is said of God in verse 2 is nothing short of mind-blowing. We know our God is one, and he is spoken of as being more than one. This isn't common. This isn't normal. This isn't even logical. And we humans have tried many times to make the unknowable God knowable. We've tried to explain the triune nature of God in terms that make sense to our, hu- our human minds, saying that God is like water that can exist in liquid, vapor, and solid form, or that God is like a three-leaf clover, all separate leaves, individual, and yet they're all one, or that God is like an egg, having a shell, having a yolk, and then having that really weird, nasty water. Or That the Trinity is like a man who can be a father, a son, and a husband all in one. But the issue with all of these analogies is that they're all heretical. Every one of them. They all, in explaining God in a manner or form that our puny brains can comprehend, they all diminish the divinity of one or more of the Trinity, or they separate them from each other. And this is the nature of fallen man. We don't like to think on truth. Matter of fact, we can't fathom that there are things out there that we can't fathom. So we just dismiss it as truth, or we just jump over it, or we go on to things that we think that we can understand. And instead of taking God at his word, in submitting to his word, this in Deuteronomy 29.29, that tells us the secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Instead of doing that, we do as Roman 1 tells us we do. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image and the likeness of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And saints, we must not do this. We must ensure that we are not doing this. We we must make sure that we are making sure that we are taking God at his word and not trying to make him into our image. So what are we supposed to do when we run across verses like Isaiah 2? Verses that we can't understand or we can't even imagine, we can't comprehend. 
Well, we must do like Paul did and just proclaim the wonder and majesty of God. He said, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to them? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Romans 11, 33-36. So in that Isaiah verse, our single God is spoken of as three separate beings, and one of them is the Spirit. And then finally, the meaning of the seven spirits of God are explained to us. Isaiah 11, 2 and 3. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And just in case you've been counting to make sure that I'm being honest with you here, you only counted six attributes there. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of God. That's only six, not seven, David. What are you trying to do? Well, we didn't take into account that first description of him. The one that's found in the description of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. The first and primary descriptor of him. The Spirit of Yahweh. And this is the meaning of the seven spirits. And if you can understand it, then you can understand a mystery that's wrapped in an enigma. And we wonder about colored horses. The seven spirits that are told to us about Jesus that he has in Revelation 1, or verse 1 of Revelation 3, I'm sorry, that is the single spirit that is spoken of in verse 2 of Isaiah 11. The spirit who is of God and that is contained that contains the fear of God, the spirit that we are told that will rest upon the Son, the spirit that is equal to the Father and the Son, even though he is said to be the spirit of Yahweh. It's the same spirit that is spoken of in Luke 4.1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was being led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Same spirit that's told to us in Acts 16.7. They came to Mysia, where they were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Same Spirit that is spoken of in Romans 8.2. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death, which is the same Spirit that is spoken of in Romans 8.11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to you, or immortal bodies, through His Spirit, who dwells in you. Are you beginning to grasp just how unknowable God is and how silly it is to be amazed at things like signs or seals or thrones or bugs? We should be amazed at this one, the one who this is a revelation of, the one who is said here has the seven spirits of God. We are meant to be amazed that this same spirit is the Spirit who is partnered with the Father and the Son in the eternal covenant that is the only means of being reconciled to God. And the seven spirits is important to the charge being leveled at this church in this letter. I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. 
How is he important in that? Well, A.W. Tozer, a man who died in 1963, the year that I was born, he said of the American church before he died, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would just go on and no one would know the difference. Leonard Ravenhill, a few years later, who was a Pentecostal pastor, he died in 1994. In one of his sermons given in the 80s, he said God is taking his hands off of America. We've had so much light and we've rejected it. The early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecution. Today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, popularity. How can you have a dead service with a living Christ? How often do we hear people say, Lord, you're welcome. But if the Holy Spirit ever came to those churches, to most churches, there would be a stampede to the door. Christ. The one who is our salvation, he said to this church, I know your deeds. You see, he is very much aware of the activities that are taking place in what is called the church. And he's very much aware of the activities that take place in our lives as well. He says, you have a name that you are alive. And that name, that is the name that we have been told of in Isaiah 11. The name above all names. The name of Christ. Christian. And once again, many of us know, or at least we think we know, what that term actually means and where it comes from. That term, though, is not how the church first understood themselves to be. They never called themselves Christian. They called themselves saints or Nazarenes. They saw themselves as a true Israel of God. And that term Christian was first used in the city of Antioch, as told to us in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And we've been taught that this has been that it was meant as a derogatory form, form. meant, and it meant little Christs. Isn't that cute? They're little Christs. There was poking fun at that little group of believers. And again, we've been taught poorly about this. You see, Antioch was referred to as all the city or all the world in one city. It was an important multicultural city. It was built like most cities in that day and age in a circular fashion with a defending wall around it, a central hub in the middle where all the trade would take place. And the city was then broken up and walled off by like spokes. And each one of those spokes, one, each one would contain a group of, of, of ethnic or religious people. Think in your mind like how it is in Chinatown or little Italy. That's how it was in Antioch. And the Jews who lived in Antioch, they had their own little section of the city with all the differing sects of the Jews living there. But when the name of Christ became, began to be proclaimed, when the truth of the salvation through that name began to be taught, something new happened because no longer were people being united by language or ethnicity there was a new, multicultural, multi-generational force that was breaking down those dividing walls within that city. And the people outside of that group, they were marveling at what was happening. And they called that group by the name that was breaking through and breaking down and uniting differing people into one. Christ, 
tien. And by the way, that tien at the end of that title doesn't mean little. It's not a derogatory term. It means belonging to the party of. And that term, that title Christian, is only used twice more in the Bible. Acts 26.28 by King Agrippa, and then 1 Peter 4.16. And in both of those instances, that name or title is always used because these people, the ones that are spoken of, are seen as different. United under the lordship of Jesus the Christ. They were the ones that were called by that name, and they surrendered to that name, that name that broke down the dividing walls of class and ethnicity, a name that caused them to live differently than the rest of society, even though they remained in society. They had a name of being alive in Antioch, and they were. And the church in Sardis had this name as well, a name of being alive, but in fact they were dead. Well, this church was active. There were a lot of things happening there. There was a buzz surrounding that place where they met. People always coming and going. 12-step programs happening. Kids being brought in to play and then to be entertained. And then adults coming in on Sunday for the same reason. They were growing. They were living a purpose-driven life. So what does Christ mean here when he says that they have a name of being alive, but they're dead? Well, we can tell reading the Bible. Ephesians 2 tells us you were dead in your transgressions and sin. These people, this church that said that they were alive in Christ, Christ says, "Uh uh-uh. And it was their actions that were proving that this is true. So what actions are you pointing to as proof that they were just professors of faith and not possessors of faith? Because I'm sure that they weren't gambling there or doing lewd things there. So what then is the defining line that Christ uses? Well, we can get an understanding of what he's talking about by the things that are not said about them by the things that are absent by what Christ said. Where's the persecution? Why in this very important and very influential city, a city that was much like Ephesus and Pergamum and Smyrna, why is this church not facing the same persecution that the churches in those cities were? In fact, why were they not facing any persecution? Were the people, the pagan people in Sardis, were they just that nice? Was the worship of the false gods in that city not that important to them? That they didn't care that these people who claimed to be of Christ, that they wouldn't worship any other god alongside of him? Were they just okay with that? Did the Roman governors there not care that these people would not worship Caesar as God? No, church, that church was safe non-confrontational. It was allowing all to come as they are and then just to remain in that state. And for this reason, it had lots of deeds and it had a name and it was proud to be so well thought of by the unregenerate. But the one whose name they were taking, he was not so proud of them. He said to them, wake up. 
Strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Again, he's pointing to the things that they were doing as evidence that their understanding of him, that their understanding of God was wrong, not just off. And then in verse 2, we're brought up hard again against the, tr- the reality of the triune nature of God. Jesus, who is God, says that the deeds of this church, that we're taking his name, he says their deeds, they're not complete in the sight of his God. And again, this doesn't compute. But it does define for us what it means to rightly have his name, to rightly do the works that he did. If we want to know what that is, we must mimic the one whose name we are given and do as he did. We must live as he did. How did he live? We're told in the Bible, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And this is the thing of verse 3 from our chapter from today, when he says, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come. He says, remember, think about this, mull this over. What did you receive? Because if you're saved, you have been redeemed by or from your sin by his blood by nothing less than the seven spirits who now dwells inside of you. And how much work did you do to receive him? And what have you heard? What did you hear? Nothing less than the gospel message that Jesus Christ laid his life down in submission to the Father. He lived for him. All the work that he did here on earth was done through the desire. All the work that he did here on earth, not just that final day, all the work that he did here on the earth was done with the desire to please the Father in submission to his will. And this is how we are supposed to view our life as well. We must understand that all that we do, saints, everything that you do is supposed to be done in submission to the one who has redeemed us from our sins by his blood as we die to ourselves, as we work out our, our salvation with fear and trembling every single moment of every single day. What we do Monday through Friday and even Saturday as well It's all supposed to be done as an act of worship to our master. Think about that before you go in to buy those things that you know you shouldn't be buying or that substance that will alter who you are. And then Jesus does as he's done in all the letters where there is a negative judgment given. Because even though in each letter, all of it is written to all the members of that church, Jesus still knows each member individually. So while there can be an overall condemnation given, as is what is given to this so-called church, 
He knows because he does have the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. And for this reason, he can do that which we have a hard time understanding. He can speak to those religious unregenerate and tell them to do that which they cannot do. Repent. You see, verses 1 through 3, they are spoken to those religious professors those that claim the name of Christ, but their actions prove that they don't have that name. And to them, he simply tells them to do which they will never do. Even though this is the litmus test to prove that they are possessors and not just professors. He says, remember what you have received and heard, which is the word of God, and then repent, meaning obey it, and they will never do it simply because they cannot do it. So who are those that are professors and not possessors? You may be wondering. Who, was, who were the lead professors here but were not possessors? The leaders of the church. Since they were the ones who were in charge of everything that was happening within the church, and you shouldn't be shocked by this. Because there's a lot of so-called pastors out there who are not possessors. And it's really easy to spot them because they don't hold to the name of God as evidenced in how he is worshipped in their services. Worship as being prescribed only in the word of God because they can't see the value of that one who is the word. The one that the seven spirits is sent to bring glory to that's his, all he's to do. And they can't see value in that. All they can see is they want to entertain the goats, to bring more people in, to make their church active so that the community at large, the unregenerate at large, will look at them and say, that's a church. But because they're not regenerate, they have no problem bringing in forms, man-made forms of worship. They have no problem synchronizing the Word of God with philosophy and just giving platitudes to feed goats instead of actually giving the Word to feed the sheep. And then he begins to speak to those. Christ begins to speak to those that do possess his name, beginning in verse 4 those that are keeping his name, those that are doing those works that the Father has approved of. Verse 4, he says, But you have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then what Jesus says next in verse 5 and 6, what he tells us once again is something that we have a hard time understanding. He says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Is he saying that we can lose our, our salvation? And I will never erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. No, saints, if you are in Christ, you can't lose that which you did not do anything for. Saints, this letter is a warning of taking the name of Christian as your own and then not living up to that name by living in a manner that is not pleasing in the sight of God. There is condemnation in it, not just conviction. There is a demarcation line drawn in the sand here between verses 3 and 4. 
You can't have the name of God and present a God to the world that does not line up with the God of the Bible, a God that does not make demands on how you live, on how you worship, on how you spend, and think that you're presenting the true and living God. And this very active, very well off, very large church was filled with people who believed that they were saved and were not. But then he makes promise, he makes a single promise to those who do possess his name, who are his, and whose actions do prove that they have been redeemed. To them he promises that he will never blot out their names from the book of life, and that they will walk with him. And no, these are not religious zealots, those that have been radically saved. They are the ones that have been truly saved. Let me ask you, dear one, where are you? Are you just okay with watching from the sideline as the church works to worship and obey God? Do you comfort yourself in not giving that which is not yours, giving happily, faithfully, and even sacrificially? Do you really think, I'm no longer under the law, being bound according to the law because we're set free from the law. Do you really think that what is expected by God of you is less than what was expected of you under the law? Even though the blood that set us free is of more value than the law? Is it easy for you just to reason away the command to go and to tell Are you doing anything in his church, for his church, for the glory of the God that you claim that you have the name of? Saints, I'm going to finish this sermon with a quote that comes from the Prince of Preachers concerning this section of Scripture. When he preached this section of Scripture, he said this, what shall be done with such a person as, as lives in the church but are not of it, having a name to live but are dead? What shall be done with mere professors who are not possessors? What shall become of those who are outwardly religious but inwardly are in the gall of bitterness? Well, we answer as good Calvin did once. They shall walk in black, for they are unworthy. They shall walk in black, the blackness of God's destruction. They shall walk in black, the blackness of hopeless despair. They shall walk in black, the blackness of incomparable anguish. They shall walk in black, the blackness of damnation. And they shall walk in black forever because they were found unworthy. Saints, search your heart. Make sure that you're not just a professor, but in fact are a possessor. The only thing that is required of you by the one that you're claiming the name of is to value his name. The name that you say has redeemed you from your sin. 
Value that name that you've been given. The unknowable, triune God of the Bible. Value that name. And saints, there was a promise made to both groups of people in this section of Scripture. I am coming quickly. For the saint, what a glorious homecoming awaits us. For those that have been given near to hear and to obey, what a, a glorious homecoming awaits us. Because Christ is coming quickly. This is the same truth for both the possessor and the professor. To the one who is a professor of his name only, though, this is terrible news because Jesus Christ is coming quickly. And he's coming in righteous judgment because you are a sinner deserving of damnation. And you will receive that which you have earned. But again, for the one who has been redeemed, who has been freed from his sin by the blood of the one who has given us his name, he's coming quickly. And this is our blessed hope. This is what he's telling these saints. Just hang on. Value my name. Continue obeying. I'm coming quickly. Let's pray.